Our New Testament reading this morning is from Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 12. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the ruler, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John also to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they met a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man who summoned Barnabas and Saul and wanted to hear the word of God. But the magician, Alimus, for that was the translation of his name, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now listen, the hand of the Lord is against you, and you will be blind for a while, unable to see the sun. Immediately a mist and darkness came over him, and he went about groping for someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was astonished at the teaching about the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading is from Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, O Lord. When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. When the whole crowd saw him, they were immediately overcome with awe, and they ran forward to greet them. He asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak, and whenever it seizes him, it dashes him down, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do so. He answered them, You faithless generation, how much longer must I be among you? How much longer must I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw him, immediately convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you are able to do anything, have pity on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you are able, all things can be done for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you spirit that keeps this boy from speaking and hearing, I command to you, come out of him and never enter him again. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he was able to stand. When he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, 
This kind can come out only through prayer. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we give you thanks for your love and for your presence among us today. And we do pray that as we open your scriptures, that you would speak to us. We pray that you would enable us to hear your voice. We pray that you would enable us to want to hear your voice. And so we ask that you would be with us now and bless this time so that you would be changing us more and more into the likeness of Jesus. So may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight right now. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. How do we listen to God? I think it's a really important and fascinating question for all of us. How do we listen to God? How, do you, how can you tell when it's God speaking as opposed to like your own appetites, your desires, your feelings, your ideas? You know, how do you discern the difference between God's leading and the leadings of others? It's a really important question. Uh, and I think this episode of, of uh, Acts is an interesting one uh, to consider as we, as we sit with that question because we've got in this story some movement of the Spirit, right? We've got the Holy Spirit speaking, you've got the Holy Spirit moving, the Holy Spirit acting, and you have people who are getting on board with that, like Barnabas and Saul, and then you have people who are opposing it, like this guy Bar-Jesus, also known as Elimus, who ends up getting... Um, some tough love from Saul in this story. It's, it's a weird story, right? And we just acknowledge this right off the bat. The Bible is weird to us. It's a really old book. It comes from a world away. It comes from, uh, from thousands of years ago. And, and it's something where we read about magicians and false prophets and we think like Harry Potter, right? Or whatever. There's, that is not the vision in view here of a magician. This is not the world of Hogwarts and Sorting Hats or Lord of the Rings or whatever. This is a very different world in which magic and sorcery and, you know, other kinds of um, supernatural activity and participation, we're, we're really just part of the fabric of society. It's hard for us to imagine that because we live in such a secularized world. Um, but in the ancient world, you know, the, the, the world was seen as very personal. And you, you didn't have this sort of divide between the secular and sacred. You didn't have the supernatural and natural. Kind of people lived in a world that was a lot spookier than the world we live in today, intellectually speaking. You know. Um, diseases were coming to get you, or the harvest was maybe mad at you, or the gods were mad, and so you know, they would curse the harvest, and you had to appease the gods to make things right. And so people lived with an active sense of supernatural activity, uh, and the gospel of Jesus is going forth into a world in which there are all these different beliefs and spiritual kinds of experiences and practices. And the movement that we've seen so far as we've read the book is, right, you've got Jesus who dies and rises again. And after he rises again, he spends 40 days teaching about the kingdom of God, and then he ascends into heaven. And then it says, you know, he receives this promised gift from the Father, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus pours out that spirit on his people in Jerusalem. And he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, the city, in Judea and Samaria, sort of the next regions around Jerusalem, and then to the ends of the earth. 
This is the program of the book of Acts. And the story that we've seen uh, beginning to unfold is the story of that movement of God's people caught up in the spirit, people who are listening to God and moving with God, who are now going to the ends of the earth, which is where we are now. We're, we're sailing out. We come to islands that are long, that are far away from the Jewish territory. We're now entering uh, this larger world, right? And we have been for a couple of chapters now. And so you've got these people who are filled with the Spirit, and it says that they are they're there, and in a season of fasting and praying, they're sent off because they hear the Holy Spirit say, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. That's an intriguing line to me because I don't know what your experiences are like, uh, but for most of us, we probably haven't heard the audible, verbal command of God, right? Um, it's not something that we typically experience, or I haven't, maybe you have. But I wonder what it was like for them to hear the Spirit say, set apart these two men and send them. Because Luke, the author of this book, doesn't give us any further commentary on that, right? He doesn't unpack for us, like, what do I mean when I say the Holy Spirit said? He just tells us that. Is that idiomatic for Luke? Is that just a shorthand for some other kind of experience? Or did they hear the verbal, audible voice of God? We don't really know. Um, but we do know that they're attentive to the movement of the Spirit. We do know that the Spirit is alive and active among them, just as the Spirit is alive and active today in the church. And so the Spirit sends them on a mission. And I think it raises the question for us of like, how, how do we listen to the Spirit today? How do we get involved with God and what God is doing? What would it sound like for us to hear the Holy Spirit say, do this or do that or go here or go there? It's a really intriguing and important question because I think the dynamic is what's so important. These are relationally engaged people who are participating with God and one another in the community of the Spirit and in the mission of the Spirit. And here we are, and we see this movement of God's people, and they go to this faraway place, and they encounter interesting things. And what they encounter when they get to this island is the proconsul, who's like the person in charge, the person in power, who's being influenced by this Jewish false prophet. In other words, a religious insider from the Jewish religion who's out there on the island, who's influencing the ruler of the place, right? And so this, this, this false prophet, Bar-Jesus, or Elymas, opposes Barnabas and Saul and is encouraging Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, to not receive them. And Paul, a.k.a. Saul, that's his, that's his Roman name, he rebukes him, right? He says this, you son of the devil, which is strong language, strong language. Maybe language that's uncomfortable for you or for me. It actually sounds a lot like Jesus' own language when Peter rebuked him, right? When Jesus was telling him that he was going to have to die and rise again, and Peter said no, and Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. It's a way of identifying opposition of the way of Jesus as opposition to God's coming kingdom on earth. And Jesus, to Peter, says, get behind me, Satan, in this way that's like really stark, right? Because Peter's one of his best buddies. And he's also one of his closest allies in this work of God in the world. But Jesus can hear in Peter's opposition to Jesus' statement, I have to die. 
he can hear this very simple and very straightforward opposition to the way it is that God's bringing forth life in the world. It will be resurrection life. It will be through the way of the cross, through the way of self-sacrifice and love, not through grasping at power. Peter doesn't understand that in that moment, and Jesus helps him to begin to understand that with a sharp word, get behind me, Satan. And here in this moment, as Barnabas and Saul, aka Paul, are arriving in this place and they're speaking with these people and they hear the same kind of opposition, you get the same kind of rebuke. You son of the devil, harsh language. But what he's saying is that the opposition to this movement is essentially opposition to God himself. It's to be part of the forces that are opposing God's life-giving reign that is breaking into this weary and weeping world and bringing forth peace and justice and goodness on the earth. And this is where we get a little slice or a little picture of God's fierce love. God's mama bear love, if you will. You know, when you see like a bear cub in the woods, if you're hiking, it's one of the most, it's one of the scariest things you can see if you're on a trail. Because if you see a cub, who is also nearby that you know? Mama bear. And mama bear does not like anyone messing with her cubs. And so if mama bear feels like one of her cubs is threatened, you're about to see what mama bear love looks like, right? And you don't want to be on the receiving end of that if you are a perceived threat. The story of the scriptures that we get revealed in Jesus is the story of God, who is the creator of all things, who is so absolutely committed to making God's world what God intends for it to be. This world of thriving life, a world of peace, of wholeness, of justice, a world where everything is in its right place and rightly related to God and to one another. God is so committed to that vision that he's committed to root out every obstacle that stands in the way of God bringing forth that peace on earth. Now, the way God is doing that is through Jesus and the movement of the Spirit, right? The way God is doing that, the surprising plot twist, isn't some sort of like top-down takeover where God just like makes all things new, but God planting his own life in the earth by becoming one of us in Jesus, by living in the world and dying beneath the weight of all that is broken, to take to himself all of the consequences of our life away from God and against one another, to die under the weight of that, and then to rise from it and to bring us with him into the glorious future that God is making. That's the story that we've stumbled into here in Acts. And that's the story of what the Spirit is now doing as the Spirit in the book of Acts is working through this group of apostles and disciples, these pastors and servants of the Lord who are going out doing the same kind of stuff Jesus was doing, filled with the same Spirit that filled Jesus, saying the same kind of things that Jesus said intervening in the same kind of ways Jesus intervened in the lives of others. And we see this passionate, fierce love of God on display as the Spirit moves through the world, making all things new once again. And what's interesting is that this tough love moment where Paul, filled with the Spirit, rebukes this false prophet who's opposing God's Spirit. It's fascinating to me that what Paul calls upon him is the exact same thing that he himself experienced in his own intervention. 
Do you remember that part of the story where Saul, who has been persecuting the followers of Jesus, he's going up to Damascus, he's on the road, and as he's nearing the city, he's on a hunt for people who are following Jesus, right? He's there authorized to arrest and bring them back for questioning in Jerusalem. So he's going on this mission to Syria to go round up followers of Jesus. And on the way, Jesus intervenes with some tough love for Saul. He says, why do you persecute me? And he's blinded, right? He falls down, he sees this bright light and then he can no longer see until this other person, Ananias, has to help him who sees in a vision that he's supposed to, be, to, to minister to Saul and to help him see again. So here we see this tough love exercised on this false prophet, this religious insider. And it's not vengeance. It's not punishment. It's a kind of corrective care for the good of all involved. This is a guy who's interfering with a movement that is good. And here, this servant of the Lord, filled with the Spirit, Paul, speaks a word of correction to him. And as a, an attestation of the truth of what he's saying, God actually makes effective his word and the guy goes blind. Now we don't get to see kind of the rest of what happens to this guy, right? We don't know how his story ends, but we do know Paul's story. We know how he was Saul, Saul, the one persecuting Jesus. We know how he was healed of his blindness and how his life turned around, how his heart was changed, how his whole mission, his whole zeal was redirected from being one of persecuting Jesus' followers to being one who was a leader among them. And we can even hear perhaps in Paul's pronouncement of this judgment against this false prophet, a kind of empathy and compassion of like the, I've been in your shoes. You need to walk the path I've walked. You're gonna be blind. You're gonna be blind. What does it look like for us to listen to the spirit today? What does it look like for us to listen to God? Can God say no to you? I think that's a hard question for us because typically as we, I don't know what your conversations that I have with folks, it's a lot easier to hear God say things that we like than it is to hear God say things we don't like. That's the same that's true for us in other relationships too, right? It's easier to hear things from a friend that, that are encouraging. It can be harder to hear an experience of us that's difficult. It's harder to hear, I need you to change. It's harder to hear, this is how I experience you as someone who has failed me or as someone who is unkind or lacking self-awareness or whatever. It's hard to hear those things. But if God is God, like the creator and ruler of all things, and not just our servant, then God has to be able to say yes and no, right? If God can't say no to me, then God isn't my God at all. God is someone I'm relating to only to do my own bidding. So what does it look like to listen? What does it look like for us to invite God's yes and no? What does it look like to draw near to God in such a way that we become sensitive to God's leading and attentive to God's voice? 
Well, I think it's probably helpful to identify some obstacles that maybe make it difficult for us, right? I think for some of us, for many of us, there's just an unwillingness that can be in the way. I know I can be just generally hard-hearted and not wanting to hear God say anything new to me because I'm comfortable in my status quo. Maybe you are too. Or I can, I can tell that faithfulness is going to be costly for me, right? To, go, to follow in the way of Jesus, which is always to go in the way of the cross, the way of self-sacrificial love, it's going to call forth from me generosity. It's going to call forth from me entering into difficult relationships, or it's going to call forth from me sacrificing my own comfort for the good of another. I don't know. But it will probably hurt at some level. And so I can be resistant to the voice of God because I kind of don't want to go where God wants me to go. Maybe you can relate to that. But beyond unwillingness, I think there's also and inattentiveness. It could just be that it, it's not necessarily a problem of the will for, for us all the time. It can just sometimes be a problem of attention, that we're, we, we're open and willing, but we're just, we can't hear or we can't see because we're distracted, we're busy. Our lives are so full that we actually don't have the time and space to listen. We're so on to the next thing on our agenda that our capacity is kind of maxed out for being redirected. And so listening to the Spirit would involve a slowing down that we don't know how to do. But there's this other obstacle that we need to be also probably mindful of, and it's the obstacle of faith itself, of religion, of our beliefs, of our practices. Because here, the person who's identified as the opponent to these followers of Jesus is a religious man. Like, that's his job. He's a religious leader who's in a place of influence and power. And the thing that makes him oppose Barnabas and Paul is either his religious status quo or his political status quo, or both, right? He's either settled into his beliefs and therefore is rejecting what they're saying on the grounds of, I don't believe you, or he's settled into his place of influence— and so he doesn't want that being disrupted by this new message that they're coming to proclaim. And that's a consistent theme through the Gospels and through the book of Acts, is that it is the religious and political establishment where you expect to find opposition to the Spirit. It's those who are in power, it's those with privilege, and it's often those who are settled into their knowing what God is all about already, who are unable or unwilling to receive what God is actually doing in their midst. The primary reason people resisted Jesus was because their theology, their religion, didn't have space for him. Or their political power was going to be disrupted if you made space for him. In the book of Acts, as the story continues, it is exactly in these same places of religious and political power where we see the, the greatest opposition to the things of the Spirit. And for us, as we just reflect on our own situatedness in society and in life, you know, as people of relative privilege, as people of relative wealth, people of relative power, people of relative comfort, whether you're thinking globally or locally, we might expect, actually, a kind of resistance within us to be something that comes with the territory of being where we are socially and culturally. 
And that should probably concern us. That should humble us. It should make us realize that we might actually need some remedial work to be ready to hear the voice of the Spirit. We might not be as able as some of our other sisters and brothers in the city who are experiencing poverty or who are experiencing injustice in various ways, who are experiencing or even just sickness, right? People who are going through hard things, who are in the valley. There's a reason that theologians of old have referred to the valley of vision. It's when we're in places of hardship that we actually begin to pay attention to God. It's when we're in the low places that we begin to look up. So we should be aware of our unwillingness. We should be aware of our inattentiveness. We should be aware of how our own situatedness culturally or socially might be presenting obstacles to us that might desensitize us to the things of the spirit and at least recognize, okay, so that may be where we're starting from. Not one of us is a blank slate. We are all renovation projects. Renovation projects. I'm in the middle of one of those at my house right now. Um, some of you know some of that. So we've been working on the house the last two months. We're now living in the house as we work on it. But one of the things, if you've ever worked on a house, if you've ever done a renovation project, you know demolition has to happen first, right? And you also know renovation is, in many ways, a lot more difficult than new construction, right? It's, it's easier to just build something new. But renovation of something old is its own kind of beautiful endeavor. It's maddening. Uh, it's hard. But it's fascinating because what you do is as you begin to renovate an old structure, old houses, you begin to uncover beauty that was hidden, right? Or beauty that had deteriorated. And you also begin to have the opportunity to enhance it with new things as well. We've just rewired our old house with modern electricity and we've put air conditioning in it. And so not only are we uncovering beauty as we rip off nasty old wood paneling and revealing these like cool old walls, but we are also able to add to it and make the house something today that's greater than what it was. That is what God is doing with all of creation. And that is what God is doing with you. God created this world to be a beautiful place of thriving life and wholeness and peace. And God's world has suffered from this cancer of human selfishness and sinfulness and life away from God and life against one another and exploitation of creation and others. We've used our human agency and power in, in, in wicked ways that, that hurt others and creation. Yet God is on the move to renew all things. And that includes you and me. You're a renovation project. I'm a renovation project. You have an inherent dignity and beauty because God has made you. God has made you to be a glorious creature. You are one. You are beloved. You are dignified. You are loved. You are also in need of renovation, as am I. And the beauty of the story of God is that God is exactly doing that. God is up to something glorious through Jesus and his spirit. He is at work in our lives, joining us to Jesus, helping us to die to all of those things that oppose the goodness of his creation coming in fullness into our lives and into the world. He's helping us to rise to a new way of life that fits his kingdom, that looks beautiful like Jesus' life looks. 
And he's willing to give us the tough love in the ways that we need it, to intervene in ways that we need it, to bring people into our lives who will speak words of compassionate correction when we need it, to speak words of encouragement when we need it, to speak words of prayer when we need it. We are renovation projects, and God is the great renovator. And what he's calling us into is this open, active, willing, attentive, dynamic participation with God in it. To open ourselves to the renovating work of God that we might become remade and renewed. To get involved with God in his renovating work in this city, in this place, in our workplaces. To use the agency that we have to to bring forth into the world the goodness and the truth and the beauty that reflects who God is. What is the Spirit saying to you today? What do you hear God saying to you today to help you become more willing to want God's intervention and activity in your life? To help you become more attentive to where you're listening, making space, slowing down, making space for community, making space for the kinds of relationships that encourage you in your faith? What is God perhaps calling you to give up? Things that you reach for that get in the way of God's activity in your life? What is God calling you to put on? Beautiful things that reflect Jesus into the world. We've been introducing this initiative called Resurrection Rhythms this year. Uh, We started at Easter. I've been doing it through the summer. But essentially, it's it's an attempt to take on habits that cultivate this kind of life. It's getting back to some ancient wisdom, or old wisdom at least, um, from the monks called a rule of life, which is essentially recognizing that we grow through our practices. We grow through our habits, which is true if you've ever done anything, right? If you've ever done an exercise regimen, if you've ever tried to lose weight, if you've ever done physical therapy, you know, it just doesn't happen. It doesn't start with thinking new thoughts. It starts with doing things, right? And the same is true of our spiritual lives. There are practices that cultivate spiritual growth, and there are practices that hinder it. And we're all starting not as blank slates, but as people whose lives are full and busy of things that form us away from God. And so we're talking about how do we take on practices that form us more into the likeness of Jesus? How do we get involved with the Spirit? How do we become people who are more attentive, who make the space? And so we have these habits of worship habits of community and habits of mission that we're trying to put on in our lives so that we can become a people who are more and more participating with God, listening to the Spirit and becoming like Jesus. And my prayer for us this year, as we head into the fall, as we think about who we're becoming individually and communally, is that we would really want to be the kind of community and we'd want to be individuals who are really filled with the Spirit and getting involved with God who are truly open to God's leading and God's care in our lives, who are willing to be remade in the likeness of Jesus, who are willing to get involved in the lives of one another and actually cultivate the good fruit of Christ-likeness in ourselves and in one another. We need that. 
And our city needs us to be a community like that. That's not just a group of religious people who think this particular set of thoughts, but to be a community that's really connected, really participating in the vibrant life of God, doing it together, serving our neighbors, and with our words and our actions, bearing witness to the glory and the beauty of Jesus, who is the hope and goodness and good news to the world. Jesus is what we need. He is whom we need. He is the one we carry in our life together. And the beautiful good news that the apostles and Acts carry, the beautiful good news that Jesus himself spoke about is that God so loves the world that he's not giving up on it. He's committed to making all things new. He's doing it in and through Jesus and the spirit and he's involved you and me in it. That is our calling, friends. It is a beautiful calling. And this fall, as we enter in more deeply to life together, let that be at the heartbeat of this community, that we are a people getting involved with God in our worship, in our community, and in our mission together. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks that you are the giver of every good gift. We give you thanks for your Holy Spirit who is alive and active among us. And we do pray that you would help us to want you. We pray that you would help us to listen to you. We pray that you would help us to take those courageous steps forward in faith, following in the way of Jesus as a people of faith and hope and love who carry together in our shared life this good news of your love, of your activity, of your commitment to make all things new and that we would really own and inhabit our identity and our calling as your renovation project, as the community of faith, but also as just participants in your world. And that we would invite you, oh great renovator, to do your work among us and to do your work in this place. So we ask for that now and we pray for it all through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen.